Today, we talk about tonight's debate, a recent New York Times report on Trump's taxes, a serious example of voter fraud out of Minneapolis, and what we as Americans can learn from the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Tuesday, everyone. It's an honor to have you tuning in with me today. Grateful that I have the opportunity to speak with you. We have so much that I want to get into today, so I am going to jump right in. Obviously, we have the debate tonight, and this is something that I will be covering in depth on Thursday's episode, so make sure that you tune back in for that. I have a lot of anticipation heading into tonight's debate. I'm excited, as many other people in our country are. I actually have a bit of a different approach, though, than many fellow conservatives do. Many of my fellow conservatives are like, man, get your popcorn ready. This is going to be a landslide. Trump's going to bulldoze over Biden, and it's going to be a very strong performance on his end and a weak performance on Biden's end, and then this thing's going to be over before it starts. Now, I don't think that that, uh, that belief about the evening is actually that helpful, and here's why. It sets the bar so high for Trump and so low for Biden. So we know that Trump's an exceptional debater. He's very unconventional, but he's exceptional at it. We saw that in the 2016 primaries with some of his interactions with Chris Christie and Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush. And then we saw it in the primaries with Hillary Clinton and challenging her on some issues like Benghazi and her emails. And we saw how how capable he was at these mic drop sort of moments, off-the-cuff comments. It's really where Trump comes alive is off-teleprompter uh, these witty moments where he's the opportunity to just kind of let his personality go. Well, in this in this debate, what that's essentially done is raise the bar so high for him that if he shows up and gives anything less than a completely stellar performance, the media will tear him apart. If Trump has one gaffe or one moment where a word slips or he doesn't make a point like he means to, the media will tear him apart like hyenas. Yet, Biden, on the other, other end of things, people expect Biden to basically get out a pillow and lay down halfway through the debate. So if Biden can even stand up for all 90 minutes, if he can speak four coherent sentences, the media will lose it. They will love it. They will say, what an incredible, impeccable debate performance. We weren't sure that he had it in him, but he did it. And that will be the mainstream media story. Because obviously, like I mentioned before, the mainstream media has truly played the part of a propaganda wing on behalf of the Biden campaign, especially in the weeks coming up to this election. Now, do I think Biden has it in him to speak four coherent sentences off teleprompter that makes sense to the American people? No, I actually don't have a whole lot of belief that he can do that. I mean, that's not even a knock against him. It's just an honest, objective take on the situation. It's why early on his campaign leaked that they've actually kept him off the campaign trail really as a liability issue because they he just continues to pull out these gaffes every time he tries to go out in public. Just two days ago, he said he's been in the Senate for 180 years. He said he went to Delaware State for university, a historically black college and university at a public event. And then Delaware State came out and said, uh, no, he didn't. So it's just been one thing after another every time he steps outside. So do I have any belief that Biden can do better than that tonight? No, certainly not. But it's not hugely helpful for conservatives to really ram home that point, because again, it's just building the momentum for a an appearance where if Biden even talks four coherent sentences, it will be a praise report on behalf of the media. So I'm trying to avoid 
a circumstance in which the the media has any ammunition to tilt the scales on the true objective performance in this debate. Honestly, I'm going in pretty open-minded, and I don't have many expectations either way. I'm just excited to see what happens tonight, hear these two candidates speak about the issues. Honestly, I'm a bit surprised that Biden's actually showing up. I wasn't sure that he would. Uh, that's, that's actually a sentiment that was largely shared amongst many people over the past few weeks. And barring some 11th hour you know, disappearance or uh, announcement coming out saying that he's not showing up, it does look like indeed he will be there, even amidst calls from some Democratic leaders over the past few days to not show up. So Nancy Pelosi has come out multiple times in the public spotlight and has urged Biden to not debate Trump. She doesn't believe that it's worth Biden's time. We all know that that actually means that she just doesn't trust that Biden will be able to do this and speak coherently on the debate stage. I think she's worried amongst other Democratic leaders that this debate will be a liability for him. But at the end of the day, that's the stage for the debate. It's actually happening. We're going to have Trump versus Biden, two very different styles of debating, and we will see how this goes. It could go one of a thousand ways. I'm looking forward to covering it with you on Thursday. Before we get into the kind of the bulk of what I want to talk about today, I want to share with you a story that broke on Sunday out of the New York Times. And if you have turned on the mainstream media at all over the last 48 hours, if you've watched your TV for more than five minutes, if you've gone to social media on any news sites or gone online to the New York Times website or CNN, MSNBC, ABC, anywhere, um, Fox and all everywhere else is covering it as well, just from slightly different angle, you would have seen the story because it is what the mainstream media in our country is looking to frame as the key election story just 48 hours before the this major first debate. And uh, before I read you this headline, I, I want to stress that it's important to understand that in politics, in presidential politics, every election cycle, we have what's called October or September surprises, where one campaign will build up a story for weeks on end, sometimes months on end, but not release it until a few weeks before the election in order to smear the opponent just a few weeks before the election while they are fresh on voters' minds right before they vote. Now, this happens on both sides. It happens every election. It's just a dirty reality of our politics. It's made worse by the fact that in this election and in 2016 as well, the media has chosen a side. They have chosen Joe Biden. It is very clear. Again, like I mentioned, Joe Biden truly can rely on the media to back him up and basically hold up his campaign, make this whole campaign a referendum on Trump, make everybody in the country angry and hopefully build up enough anger to where they'll project it on Trump and then vote him out of office. That is really the goal. This New York Times report was perfect evidence of this because right at the time that this report was being released, the Biden campaign already had campaign ad ready. They had these political hit ads based on this report against Trump ready to go two days before this debate as well. So this coordinated effort to work together between the Democratic Party and the media, it's got to stop. It does such a disservice to Americans. The need is there more than ever, like I've mentioned in the show before, for objective journalism, at least transparent journalism. Again, I don't have a problem with saying, actually, I do have a bias and it factors into my reporting. And I'm going to be honest about that up front. That's awesome. Thank you for telling me. I've told you guys I'm a conservative. I believe that those set of ideals, for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, align more with my faith in Christ. That's why I'm a conservative. And this show, I'll share with you reports and all these things, and then I'll give you my opinion on it from my perspective, right? If, if journalists would do that, if they'd be honest with the American people, we'd live in such a more healthy, non-sensationalized society. But for whatever reason, it's just too tough for them to do that. So all that to say, here is the report. Ready? Here we go. We're going to jump in. This is the New York Times. The headline is this. The president's taxes, long concealed records, show Trump's chronic losses and years of tax avoidance. 
The Times obtained Donald Trump's tax information extending over more than two decades, revealing struggling properties, vast write-offs, and an audit battle, and hundreds of millions in debt coming due. Now, here's the New York Times' main goal with this article. As I read this through, which it is a long piece, and the reality is I think they did this purposely because I think they realize most Americans will not take the time or even have the time to read this. So let's just put the highlight information that we want to make sure we convey at the little bullet points at the top, the first two paragraphs, and then just trust that Americans will think they have enough information and not read the rest. So here's what they wanted us to see. I'm going to read you the first two paragraphs. First is this. Donald J. Trump paid $750 in federal income taxes the year he won the presidency. In his first year in the White House, he paid another $750. He had paid no income taxes at all in 10 of the previous 15 years, largely because he reported losing much more money than he made. So that's what we hear. We read these first two paragraphs and we're like, oh my goodness, wait a second. You're telling me this billionaire only paid $750 in federal income taxes in 2016 and only another $750 in 2017? And he hasn't paid federal income taxes 10 of the last 15 years. Now, on the surface, that sounds not good, right? Sounds like, well, wait a second. Is that even legal? Okay. Here's what New York Times told you, actually, in the report, but way down, multiple paragraphs down. They actually admit that Trump has paid millions of dollars in taxes over the past decade. Millions and millions of dollars in taxes, in personal taxes, Social Security, Medicaid, etc., it's the federal income tax that's different because Trump's income does not look like the average American's income. The average American makes their income from their salary. Trump does not make his income from his salary. His income comes from investments and his asset portfolio. And so for him, Trump, basically, how this worked to where he only paid $750, he's paying the bare minimum. He hired an accountant to go through and crunch all of his numbers and go through his entire portfolio and make sure that he was paying the bare minimum on these investments and on this income that he makes from his assets and from his portfolio. Does that make this illegal? No. Now, you may think, well, that's way too little money to be paying in federal income taxes. That's fine. You can think that. But he's still a uh, he's still uh, operating by the tax code. And he's not the one that made the tax code. You know who did make the tax code? Congress, led by people like Joe Biden for the last 47 years. They wrote the tax code. Trump wasn't in office yet in 2016. He was campaigning. All he did was do what most other very wealthy people do, hire a good accountant who will do their job, which is to make sure that their client pays as little money as legally possible. That is the role of accountant. You may disagree with that. And you may find an issue with that. That's fine. There's an argument for that. But at the end of the day, an accountant's job is not to cure income inequality. An accountant's job is to save their client as much money as possible. And the other big piece, too, with this is that the New York Times doesn't bother to do some disclaimers at the beginning of this and share some of these important other things that it would have been nice to mention, that the fact that he did spend millions of dollars in taxes, we're just talking about federal income tax here, they didn't bother sharing the reality that income tax, especially to young people, they need to share this because our generation isn't learning about the realities of some of the intricacies of our tax code because their economics professors are too busy teaching about why socialism is awesome. So they're not learning the fact that when you're talking income, it can mean a lot of different things. And for a person like Trump, it means real estate. When you're talking real estate, you're talking about depreciation and maintenance costs that sometimes can be over and above the rent revenue you're bringing in. And then you deduct that. And so there's so much that goes into this conversation that is misunderstood. And if you just read it for these bullet points, you leave thinking, wow, oh my goodness, I can't believe how fraudulent. 
At the end of the day, I'm surprised actually that the New York Times is using this as their October, September surprise, at least one of them, and trying to use this as a big boost up moment uh, right before the debates. I'm surprised that this story is being revealed now because this is exactly what the mainstream media tried to do in 2016. This was the attack, attack Trump on his tax returns. Here's why I don't understand that play. First of all, it didn't work in 2016. But also, I actually don't think Americans generally are that concerned about the wealthy businessman's tax returns. I think Americans are generally more concerned with how on earth does a politician get into office and 30 years later still be in office in Congress and be significantly more wealthy? How on earth did somebody join politics and still be in politics 47 years later like Joe Biden and have way more money? How does that work? Because politics, I thought you're not supposed to jump into politics, become a career politician, and make a ton of money on the backs of the American people because we pay their salaries. Well, you're not supposed to. In fact, the founders never intended for career politicians in the first place. That's a whole other topic for a different episode. But at the end of the day, there is no reason why Nancy Pelosi should be living in a mega mansion. And you may say, well, she has book deals or she has speaking gigs and all these things. That's totally fine. But at the end of the day, she has been in politics for years, decades and is significantly more wealthy today than she was back then. And that does not all come from book deals. I want to see those tax returns. I want to see public servants' tax returns that are now filthy rich living in gated mansions while their constituents are living paycheck to paycheck. Those are the people I'm more concerned about. And the elitist media, that's them. They don't, they don't want to actually cover those stories. So they don't bother talking about how Hunter Biden made three and a half million from a Russian oligarch while he was, while his dad was the sitting vice president. They want to talk about how Biden in a report just recently found that he actually used a loophole to save $500,000 on his taxes so he wouldn't have to pay his personal taxes to Social Security and Medicaid. They don't want to talk about any of that. The mainstream media won't cover it. And if it sounds like I'm being very one-sided here, I'm not trying to necessarily defend Trump's actions. I am trying to say that, hey, there are loopholes that he didn't create, and just because he uses them doesn't mean that he is any worse than the rest of the wealthy people that would also use them if they hired an accountant that was doing their job correctly and trying to save as much money as possible. I'm not trying to go in and talk about the morality of our tax code. What I am trying to talk about is the fact that our Liberal establishment media is obsessed with this man and people on the right's tax returns when they're these wealthy businessmen. And my simple point is to say, this report feels very pointless. It feels very misguided. What Americans actually deserve to know is where are the lobbyists spending their money? Let's see those statements. Let's see who's getting bought out in DC. Let's see who's getting bought out in Congress. That's what Americans deserve to know. I'm not concerned about a businessman who only entered politics three and a half years ago. He hasn't been making his money off the backs of American people. He's hired staff. He's built businesses. What has Joe Biden ever built? When has he ever built a business and employed thousands of people? Trump has tens and thousands of people. So I'm not concerned about Trump and his taxes. I am concerned about the public officials that we pay their salary. They've never actually built anything of value for their communities in their entire lives, and yet they are continuing to be put in the spotlight as these people of power in our country, and we haven't stopped to ask one simple question. Uh, why? Why do we keep electing these people? Where do they get their money from? How did Nancy afford that house? I mean, why are these questions not being asked? So I could go on a tangent there, but I'll stop there. I, I do want to say that it's it's also a bummer that this was released on Sunday and so overshadowed some of the more important news that's taking place right now. For example, uh, there's a report that just was released yesterday about voter fraud and what's taking place in our society. 
there was an undercover report by a investigative journalism organization called Project Veritas. Basically, they do undercover reporting to try to expose corruption within the uh, political world. And here's the report. So this is the Federalist reporting on this report. Project Veritas goes inside Ilhan Omar's alleged voter fraud scheme. So Ilhan Omar is a Democratic representative from Minneapolis. She is one of the squad, the quote unquote, the squad. So that's her, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They're kind of the future of the Democratic Party. This is the report. Minnesota Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar is reportedly orchestrating an illegal widespread vote harvesting scheme in Minneapolis and exploiting the city's Somali immigrant community, according to the investigative watchdog group Project Veritas. In a 17-minute video expose, the group features Minneapolis City Councilman Jamal Osman's brother, Labal Muhammad, incriminating himself on Snapchat videos showing ballots piled up in the dashboard of his car. We actually have the video. I'll uh, post the video in my show notes sent to you on Friday so you can see it. It is very incriminating. Intimidating. Um, I I was blown away watching it. Uh, just today, we got 300 for Jamal Osman, Mohammed Braggs. I have 300 ballots in my car right now. Numbers don't lie. You can see my car is full. All of these here are absentee ballots. That's a direct quote. So ballot harvesting is basically where a third party comes and collects ballots on behalf of other people and then turns them in. Uh, it's illegal in most states. Minnesota, though, does allow third parties to collect up to three ballots for voting individuals, far fewer than the 300 shown in Muhammad's car, obviously. There was a whistleblower on this. His name was Omar Jamal. He was a whistleblower on the corrupt scheme who spoke to Project Veritas, told the group of Ilhan Omar's alleged involvement, calling the entire operation an, quote, open secret in the community. Quote, she will do anything that she can to get elected, and she has hundreds of people on the street doing that. This is true. That is incredibly serious. This is a felony. And this is a major issue, major act of fraud committed on behalf of a sitting congresswoman with a whole network to back this up and to uh, continue to perpetuate these crimes in her community. It gets worse. Women and young people, the anonymous source added, were also reportedly paid cash for returning their ballots. Quote, they were carrying bags of money, the anonymous individual said. When you vote and they mark you off, they get you in the van and they give you cash. This is wild. So I think that we should do an, an investigation into this. Trump has already called for that. I think that's the right move. We need to move on this because we have heard people in the media say, oh, there's not uh, voter fraud. This is all a scam. There's no such thing as voter fraud. This is going to be fine. At the end of the day, we have some real incriminating evidence here that schemes like this are taking place. We saw the, the batch of Trump ballots just last week that were ditched. We, we know that issues like this are taking place around the country, and it's important to take them seriously, especially in this election, because we are trying something on a scale nationally that we've never tried before with these mail-in ballots before. There are only a few states that do universal mail-in ballots, and they've taken years to perfect their systems. Now, all of a sudden, in the middle of a pandemic, we're about to try it for the entire country. So for people to ask questions like, hey, we really need to investigate all of these uh, instances where, there's, uh, where there is reported fraud because we need to make sure that we are going into this election prioritizing safety. We cannot write off these threats. But that is exactly what some people in the media would like to do. They think Trump's ridiculous for talking about voter fraud. At the end of the day, stories like this only help his case. It only gives evidence to the fact that there is something worth investigating here. But again, because this has been so overshadowed by another tax report about this businessman, the media doesn't even cover it. The other thing, by the way, just to go back to this taxing for a second, nobody talks about the fact that Donald Trump is one of the only presidents in U.S. history that doesn't take a salary. 
His salary is over $400,000 a year in the White House, and yet he donates it back to the United States government every single quarter. He doesn't take a salary. So it's so interesting that the, this New York Times report tries to paint him as this guy who's struggling for cash and he makes no money and he's going to be broke when he leaves the White House and he's losing money on all of his properties and all the stuff, even though you know he has all these properties worth hundreds of millions in assets. But at the end of the day, they don't bother sharing that this guy actually has, des- has lost money being in the presidency and he actually forgoes his salary for the American people, gives it back into these government administrations. But you definitely won't hear about that because, again, remember, it's Trump is bad. Trump is bad. And if you think anything else, you're just a crazy conservative. And so that's where we're at today. Uh, But, you know, all of this is happening at the same time that companies like Amazon, you know, Amazon paid zero dollars in federal income tax in 2018. And they have far more money than Donald Trump does. And yet nobody in the media is throwing a fit. It really is just such a partisan story going on as we head into this election. The reality is I don't think it will matter too much. I I think that it will be talked about over the next few weeks, but I don't think it's going to matter a ton for the election. We're actually going to unpack this story a bit further. We're going to talk more about the economy on Thursday. Kind of just gave away what our election topic is for our next episode of the election series. We are going to talk about the economy. We're going to take the right's perspective and the left's perspective and their desires for the future of the United States economy coming out of this coronavirus season, hear what their different policy proposals are, and help you feel informed as you head to the voting booths this fall. So we're going to talk about that on Thursday. We'll get more into it. What I want to do now is I want to share with you a piece of very good news. Great news. I think it's great news. Some of my friends on the left do not agree with me, do not think it's great news, but that's okay. We're able to disagree and be respectful. I hope and pray that you have friends like that in your life as well, too, that you're able to disagree with and yet still honor and respect and cherish as a friend. So I actually think that this should be great news for every American, especially Christians. I think Christians should pay attention to the events of the last few days. On Saturday, Judge Amy Coney Barrett was officially nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States by the president at the White House. It was a momentous occasion. It was monumental. It was incredible. And honestly, as I watched, I was just blown away that this is where we're at. I was so thankful to see someone of her stature up on stage with her story and her priorities and her aptitude and her ability to be nominated for this court. I think it's a perfect fit. I'm really thankful. I think it's one of the better decisions Trump has made during his presidency. And I'm really excited about it. I hope and pray that it is a smooth confirmation quickly. Here's what I saw as I watched on Saturday. I watched a woman who has her priorities in line. I saw a woman who has made God's values her priorities. I saw a woman who at 48 years old is very deservingly being nominated to the highest court in the land. While she has seven kids all very young, by the way, five of which are biological, one has Down syndrome, two are adopted from Haiti. Her husband is also a lawyer. She's a Seventh Circuit judge. She's also a professor at Notre Dame. All of this is going on at once in her life. And at the end of the day, she actually says in a quote that advancing the kingdom of God is her priority, that she does everything she does for God and his kingdom to be advanced. It's phenomenal. She should be an inspiration to all of us, especially to young women. Because what I saw on Saturday is this woman stand up, like I just mentioned, and honor her family. She actually said in her hometown back in South Bend, people don't see her as the judge first. They see her as the mom first, the soccer mom, the carpool mom, hanging out in the minivan with her kids, spending time with her family, a faithful wife devoted to her husband and to her family. It's incredible. She gave the most honoring speech Best speech I've ever heard of any uh, Supreme Court nominee acceptance speech in my lifetime, certainly. 
she she honored her husband from the stage in a way that was so profound and was just this example of a strong marriage where these two were clearly unified in their calling. And more than anything, as I was watching this speech, I was like, man, God is doing something so powerful through this woman and her family, and I hope that people realize it. This is not an accident that she was nominated. And I hope that Christians are aware and awake to see that this was just a really good call. This is someone who, again, has made God's values their priorities. That's what I want in life. And here's the cool thing. She completely has destroyed the argument of the postmodern feminist that says these two things. First, that career is the most important thing, that the way that a woman can prove herself to the world is if she goes out and enters any space that's currently occupied by a man. That language is used all the time. This idea of occupying space that's currently occupied by a man. Going and being that VP of that marketing firm, even though that does not satisfy you. Talk to any VP of the marketing firm, even if they love their job. 40 years in, they'll tell you, "Uh, yep, that wasn't what satisfied me. It was a sense of purpose that satisfied me. Relationships, community, relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, people chase the golden egg. They get to their 40s, 50s, realize that it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth what was going to bring their life significance. And then they hit midlife crisis and wonder, well, what the heck have I been doing this this entire time for? But that is what postmodern feminism has taught these young girls, that the way to... Prove to society that you have what it takes is go get that degree, go crush it in the workforce, gain your way up the ladder, climb it until you reach the top. Don't let anything hold you back. Don't let family or any other responsibilities hold you back. It's all about making a name for yourself. It's an incredibly narcissistic viewpoint, honestly. And yet that has been the golden carrot at the very top of modern feminism. So that's the first lie that modern feminism has said. The second lie is that in order to achieve that golden carrot and career achievement and success in your profession, you have to be willing to give up your family. You have to be willing to give up your relationships. You have to be willing to put off all these other things in life in order to achieve that golden, that golden carrot. Here's what Amy Coney Barrett did. She stood up and said, nope. I'm actually going to take this opportunity to accept this nomination to the highest court in the land and basically just spend the entire time bragging on my family. And then at the end, in a move of complete humility and gratitude, saying that at the end of the day, this, 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 if I get confirmed, it won't be because of my merit or I'm not going to take this because I just want career advancement. I'm doing this for the American people. I mean, what greater display of humility and gratitude? She, she has blown apart that argument that in order to achieve, you have to sacrifice all these other things that God has actually called more important than career achievement. Because it is not the VP of the marketing firm. It is not being the tech giant. It is not being the top lawyer at your law firm. It is not being the top graduate at your university that's going to bring your life purpose. Those things are fine when they, and great actually, when they are kept in alignment with God's ultimate priorities for our lives. When they are not, when they are detached from that, they become idols. When God has made it very clear, these are my values as dictated through scripture, as clearly articulated through scripture. And if you seek first the kingdom and this righteousness that the word talks about, you can trust that God will take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will come. That's why Mother Teresa said, if you want to to change the world, go home and love your family. Amy Coney Barrett has understood that. She pursued loving her family well, taking care of her community, involving herself in a faith community, being a faithful wife, engaging in a powerful marriage that they're devoted to one another. And at the end of the day, as she sought the Lord more than anything else, guess what? It actually worked. She sought the kingdom and his righteousness and God provided all the rest. 
It's amazing when people say, I'm going to prioritize God's values. I'm going to seek a relationship with him above all else and trust that the rest will fall into place. And then how cool when it does, because he's, his, he's always faithful. So when you had last year at the Golden Globes, Michelle Williams, famous actress, stand up with her little golden trophy and share that in order to achieve this trophy and all the success in her life, she had to employ her women's right to choose. We hear women stand up at the Women's March for the pro-choice issues and share that without their abortions, they don't know where they'd be. And then you have people like Amy Coney Barrett that say, "Uh uh-uh, the most important things in life is not this Supreme Court nomination. It's not career achievement. It's whatever God has told me to prioritize, which for her, that's been family and faith and community and relationships. And because she was faithful with the little, God is clearly entrusting her with the more. This should be a wake-up call for all Christians to say, we have been praying for godly leaders in our land. And guess what? We just got a potential one right here. We've been praying for people that would uphold kingdom values. Guess what? We got one right here. She is saying that she will interpret the Constitution as written. She will follow in Antonin Scalia's footsteps, her uh, mentor and the guy she formerly clerked for, who was a Supreme Court justice that just passed a few years ago. He was, in my opinion, one of the best justices we've ever had on the court. And she's saying that judicial philosophy is what I will base my jurisprudence on. That's amazing. We should be rejoicing. And yet so many churches right now and Christians are staying silent about this. They're waiting the PC line when we should be praising the Lord that there is really a turning of hearts happening in our judicial system in the country right now. Not to a theocracy, but to God's values being prioritized in the highest courts of the land. Here's the other thing that's been really interesting to watch. Over the past few years, you've had a lot of progressive Christian women that have shared, oh, I don't know how you could ever vote for Trump. He's such a non-Christ-like figure, his language and the way he's talked in the past and his personality and all these different things. Yet, now that we have a woman that is being nominated to the highest court in the land, that lives out righteousness, that prioritizes God's values, that actually stands up for family and faith, where are those women now? Have you seen any of them post on Instagram or on Facebook saying, hey, you know what? I really haven't liked Trump, but I'm, I'm thankful for this because finally someone that I've been praying for that is righteous, that has that godly leadership is now in the highest court land. You haven't seen that. In fact, somehow you've seen a rationalization amongst some progressive Christians to be against this. Now, the media has come out and has aided this. They, they have, you know, I would actually understand if the media said, hey, here's our big argument. They should not have nominated a justice in an election year because they, they didn't when it was a split Senate and presidency in 2016. Just because the parties are the same now, they shouldn't do that. I addressed that, ar- that issue, that argument in my episode last Tuesday. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like. Uh, that's a fair argument, though. I disagree with it, but I do believe that's a fair argument. I would understand if the media was trying to go after that. What the media has done instead is attack the very core values that has created this woman of nobility and humility that stood on that podium on Saturday. So they've attacked her faith. They've called her a religious nut. Bill Maher went out and said a whole lot more choice words about her because of her faith. You've seen uh, leading politicians question her Catholicism, saying that she's too radical. She's a charismatic nut. She speaks in tongues. She's nutty. You've seen these people say that she's a woman from the handmaid's tale that is basically wanting to bring all of, all of female society back into the Stone Ages. That's, that's real quotes that have been shared about her. You've heard people attack her as a sexist because she believes in traditional gender roles. She actually believes that male and female are different. 
they are equally valued, but they have different personalities, generally different strengths. Maybe women are tend to be more nurturing. Maybe men tend to be physically stronger because, I don't know, biology. And the Bible clearly lays out that we are different in some ways. It's not a knock on our equality. It's not that one's better than the other. So when she says that, apparently now she's a religious zealot and a bigot. She also believes that life begins at conception. She doesn't believe in the abortion argument. She believes that every life is deserving of being protected and cherished. And she has proven that in her own life, obviously. And then all the people that are saying, oh, well, if you really cared about life, you'd advocate for adoption. Guess what? She adopted two kids. She obviously prioritizes that as well. But then you see people come after her adoption. You see people like Ibram X. Kendi, who is a the New York Times bestselling author of the book that was sort of an anthem amongst the Black Lives Matter crowd over the last six months called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Well, he comes out and tweets, some white colonizers, quote, adopted black children. They, quote, civilized these, quote, savage children in the, quote, superior ways of white people while using them as props in their lifelong pictures of denial while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity. So Amy Coney Barrett and her husband adopt these two children from Haiti, not because they're racist and trying to somehow alleviate their racism, but because that's what you do in adoption. You love kids and you want to help them live a really wonderful life and you invite them into your family. Yet Ibram X. Kendi has this incredibly shallow view of people. Not only that, he actually tweeted a picture of the wrong couple with two kids that were not theirs. So he tweets this long, very hateful tweet about Amy Coney Barrett and her husband and her two adopted kids. And then the, the picture that he tweeted wasn't even actually them. It's wild. And then he comes back and tries to retract and say, well, even though it wasn't them, the point's still the same. And at the end of the day, so much has been revealed in 2020 and it's like God is doing this work to bring things into the light, to be revealed in order that I think we as society can address them and, and that we can be healed moving forward. But so much in this season has been brought to the light through COVID and the protests and the shutdowns and now this Supreme Court nomination. And you're seeing that there is a real move amongst not everybody on the left, but the very progressive, postmodern, sort of nihilistic uh, sector of society that at the end of the day, we have seen that faith, family, godly values, biblical righteousness, being involved in a religious community, these things that these are things that are deeply hated. And Jesus warned us about this, that we would face persecution because of our walk with him. Amy Coney Barrett has, ex has experienced that in the spotlight over the past few days. And yet, what does the Lord say to do? Blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. So we should see it as a blessing. It's really interesting. A few years ago during the, uh, her first hearing with the Senate, Senator Dianne Feinstein in 2017, when she, when, when she was getting, when Amy Coney Barrett was getting um, appointed to the, the Seventh Circuit, Dianne Feinstein from California goes on this rant about religious dogma and how it's not good for people to be religious in government institutions, and finally shares, Amy Coney Barrett, the dogma lives loudly within you. What a compliment. I hope that people see my life and they say, hey, you know that Christian dogma, which is basically the tenets of faith, right? Like dogma is any sort of set of beliefs that are kind of core convictions, like tenets that you live by and almost that you can kind of point to as evidentiary uh, factors that you can tell something by, like fruit of a tree. Well, Diane Feinstein is essentially saying, hey, Amy Coney Barrett, clearly your faith lives loud in you. Now, Diane meant it as a negative, meant it as an attack, but I hope that Amy Coney Barrett felt that as a compliment 
because that's how I would love to be talked about, that the Christian dogma lives loudly within me. Even though she means that as an insult, I'm going to take that in a positive way and say, hey, Lord, clearly you're living loud enough in me that people are seeing it. So blessed are we when we're persecuted because of our faith in him. It's an opportunity. So I'm inspired, and I hope and pray that this is kind of a wake-up call for Christians as well, especially those of us that have been asleep at the wheel over the last few months, that have allowed for our value system to be dictated by what culture is doing. And culture says that this is loving, so I go that way. And culture says that this is accepting, so I go this way. When in reality, God made it clear that there will be times in life when the wisdom of the world in their eyes will look like foolishness to God. They don't have the same way of doing things. God's values looks different than culture's priorities right now. Just end of the day, it does. If you read through the scriptures enough, you start to see that God values very different things than our culture is valuing right now. So I hope and pray that in the midst of cultural opposition, the dogma of of Christ, my tenets of my faith live loudly within me. That is my prayer. And that's my prayer for you as well, that wherever you're at on this journey, figuring out who you are and what you believe and what your convictions are and what you're standing on and what your foundation is for your belief systems. And obviously, I hope and pray that that's a journey that leads to Christ. But at the end of the day, wherever you're at on that journey, don't let political correctness get in the way of you asking good questions. Don't be afraid to say, "Eh, I don't think that the way that culture is walking is the way that I want to walk. Because if you are really asking questions like, why am I here? What am I doing here? And what way should I walk? And who am I living for? What am I living for? What values am I prioritizing? If you are asking those questions and allowing for culture to yell in your ear, you will not be able to hear God as he's trying to answer you. There's just no way. Culture is so loud right now, and it is speaking a different language than God is. Honestly, it's leading to a path. This culturally popular message is leading to a path of nihilism, narcissism, postmodernism, and moral relativism. None of those paths lead to promising end games and end results. So that's where I'm going to leave it for today. I hope and pray that this episode has been a blessing for you. I know there's a lot more we could talk about on this topic, but I'm going to talk to you guys on Thursday. Looking forward to jumping into the economics conversation in light of our coming election. Also, I'm really looking forward to going through the conversation about the debate and debriefing all that takes place tonight. So looking forward to that. Hey, also Thursday, got a big show update for you all. Really looking forward to that a surprise announcement. So make sure you tune in on Thursday. If you have not left a positive review on Apple yet, please, if you can do that, that would be amazing. That helps the show more than you know. Please share this show amongst your friends and community. And if you would feel led to donate, you can donate on my website at refiningpoliticsandculture.com. On my website, you can also subscribe to the email list where you can get the show notes and the outline for this episode. Also, this weekend, you will receive my newsletter. Really looking forward to that. So if you subscribe uh, this week, you will get my newsletter sent to you this Friday along with the show notes and outline with an update of where we're going next in the show and some fun show details. So with all that being said, it's been an absolute honor to talk to you all today. Cannot wait to speak to you again on Thursday. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. 